Being a chef means keeping your cool in the kitchen. And with Resi Priority Notify and Global Dining Access through my Amex Platinum card, right this way, it's nice to try someone else's food for a change. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Fuma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. What's up, Open Floor Globe? This is Ben Golver with the Washington Post. I am joined on the other line by Michael DePodpina, who's been covering the NBA for 538 and GQ. Michael, we are on the eve of the presidential election that I think people have been counting down to for days, weeks, months, years, their entire voting lifetime. And so I think our message is similar to what it was last week. Vote if you haven't voted, and if you have voted, pat yourself on the back and maybe see if anyone else uh, that you know in your social circle or family hasn't voted yet and encourage them to vote. Michael, I know you said last week it felt great that you were dancing in line for 90 minutes while, I think, (laughs) reading aloud a Stephen King passage if I'm uh, retelling your story properly. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly what happened, Ben. Thank you for... Your great memory when I speak, I, I, I really appreciate it. Um, no, I, I echo everything that you're saying, though. Please, everyone vote. Please, everyone tell everyone who you know in your life who might not have voted to you know, give them a gentle nudge, a gentle reminder that, uh, yeah, tomorrow's the last day you can do so. And when I went to vote, I actually voted at home in silence by myself because we do vote by mail here in California. And then I actually went to drop it off in the ballot drop box, which I don't usually do. And I thought about filming a video, Michael, of myself doing maybe like reenacting some of my favorite dunk contest dunks, you know, to kind of throw the ballot into the ballot box. Thankfully, there were other citizens in public, you know, socially distanced, but still close enough to watch me make a fool of myself. So I did not do that. I stopped short and just, you know, casually put it in like a normal person. But I thought about it. And hey, if if you're looking for a way to spice things up, I've just given you some great content ideas. All right, listeners, uh, you've gotten your speech. You know what to do. Go out there and make Michael and I proud. Michael, we have uh, some news to catch up on here with the NBA and the NBA Players Association's uh, ongoing negotiations. And we also just got some hilarious and really thoughtful questions this week from the Open Floor Globe. They emailed us openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail at gmail.com. We're going to get to their questions here in not too long. But first, let's, uh, 
Let's dive into the latest on these negotiations because the deadline passed last Friday. The NBA and the players had really wanted to reach terms on here's what next season is going to look like. Here's the schedule uh, by October 30th. That came and went. The players asked for a one-week extension. Uh, homework's not done. Essay's not written, so they need an extra week um, to kind of figure things out. Uh, the owners, uh, according to Adrian Wojnarowski of ESPN and, and I guess uh, NBA executives as well uh, within the league office, are starting to get a little bit impatient. They're realizing the clock's ticking down only a couple weeks until the draft, uh, only a couple weeks uh, until free agency would start, and then they want to get this thing going with training camps in early December, and that's basically a month away. So they're uh, trying to turn up the heat a little bit. Uh, essentially where things stand, the players would l- prefer to start um, in January on Martin Luther King Day. The owners still want to start on December 22nd. They haven't completely ironed out the financial breakdowns. And what we do know is that the NBA is looking at a potential $4 billion hole next season because they will not be able to have uh, fans in stands. Uh, it sounds like you know possibly for the entire season and postseason. If you listen to Dr. Fauci um, over the weekend, he had some pretty dire statements essentially saying that sporting events might not return to normal until the fourth quarter of 2021, um, and also saying that this upcoming you know, uh, winter period here, uh, Thanksgiving, the Christmas season, holiday season, and all of that going forward was going to be a really, really tough time for the country with regard to the co- coronavirus. So all of that is uh, pretty dark and depressing news, Michael. But I just wonder, uh, as you're stepping back here, uh, I don't know if you want to call these pressure tactics, but at least you know the time running out, is it starting to crystallize that do the players really have much leverage here if the owners are intent on starting on December 22nd? And if they're insisting that doing so uh, would lead to somewhere between $500 million and $1 billion extra dollars of revenue, if you're in a situation where almost half of your league's revenue is just disappearing uh, next season, is this the kind of, is it a luxury that they can't afford? Do they just have to kind of get out there and play because uh, the economic damage is already looking so dire? Or is this a case of uh, maybe the owners trying to overstate the financial hardship to just, uh, you know, get their way? What do you think? Well, I mean, first of all, when they come to you and say that the potential revenue loss is an estimate between 500 million and 1 billion. I'm kind of like, can you narrow that window down a little bit and give me a more accurate representation of what we're talking about here? Well, Um, that's tricky too, because there are like different ways to look at it. Of course, there's whatever you're going to generate from Christmas, right? And then whatever you're going to get from, you know, the early buildup period, but there's also the potential of if you have to delay the playoffs in any way, that could be a wider range, right? And Mm -hmm. just to put this into context, like, uh, it seems, from as far as we could tell, the bubble experiment basically got the NBA a billion dollars saved, recouped revenue, right? So think about all the effort they went into building that thing, negotiating that thing, keeping everyone safe, going down there and living there for three months to save $1 billion, right? And if they're saying, okay, well, starting early is going to save between $500 million and a billion, you can understand why the league's position would be like, come on, guys, like this is a no-brainer. You know, this is like the cost of three weeks. Like this is an absolute thing. It was just, we have to do this. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it's not nearly as personally painful as that bubble experience would be. But again, as outsiders, we have no ability to fact check that number uh, in terms of, you know, what's the real impact. And the NBA does have motivation to kind of inflate that number or to make it seem bigger to kind of increase the pressure on the players, right? Yeah, for sure. But um, I mean, generally speaking, I'm 
just always optimistic that these two particular sides, the owners, the league um, versus the players, will always figure something out when it comes to labor negotiations because especially right now, like as you wrote in your column, you had a really good line, um, uh, quote, a basketball labor war would be met by crickets and disgust. <laughs> so I, yeah. I, I let's, totally... Let's, let's uh, investigate that because, Michael, I know you said you had a hard time staying locked in during the shutdown last uh, uh-huh. last summer because we didn't know if they were coming back and like other things are going on. I mean, there's obviously Black Lives Matters protests in the streets. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, mm-hmm. people are questioning uh, their own individual value as human beings and how does society treat us and all these kinds of things during an economic crisis as well. If the NBA were to reach a point where they're like, you know what, like we just need an extra month. Like if the players came back and said, hey, we can't you know, figure this out by Friday. We need so much more time. What do you think the basketball fan community's response would be? And what would your individual response be? Um, hmm. I think don't hold back here. Be honest. I mean, look, I would be, I would be flat out outraged. Probably, I don't know. Maybe that's a little bit too strong. You would be outraged at the players. You're saying no, not necessarily at the players. It's just that their inability, the two sides' inability to reach a deal, right? Like they showed so much ability to compromise over the last couple of months. The sport is in an absolute crisis right now. Four billion dollars of lost revenue. You can only call that a crisis. And it's caused by the coronavirus. So if you can't put your heads together and figure out how to, you know, have everyone do their jobs, owners, players, coaches, executives, everybody in between, and there's just no way to make it work, um, you deserve to be pilloried by your fans who are expecting your product and who have their hopes up. You deserve to have everybody look at you and say, like, what do you mean, guys? Like, sure, you're losing $4 billion, but you're still making 4 or $5 billion. You can't figure a way to, to take that hit and, and kind of th- keep things going. Uh, especially when, you know, people around the country are being forced to go back and, uh, you know, to their jobs and work sometimes in unsafe circumstances. I think the heat would be monstrous. I think it's a very complicated issue. I think that the league and the players are trying to navigate something that's basically, you know, uncharted waters, completely unprecedented in recent history. Um, It would be still, as you said, I think it would be an embarrassing look for everyone involved if they were... the the perception was that they were squabbling over like I, I millions billions of dollars while a majority of the country is in an economic tailspin um but I, you know the way i kind of want to frame this discussion with you ben is that like the longer negotiations drag on the less optimistic i am which i think is pretty natural but like i have a question for you um what percentage chance do you think it would be that the NBA and the Players Association will ultimately rip up the CBA and essentially punt on the 2020-2021 season? Um, well, look, I'm very much in day-to-day mode, in part because we have an election tomorrow, Michael. So my long-term thinking um, compass is not <laughs> is not very well calibrated right now. I also, just from the sense I got talking to some of the leadership people down there in the bubble— it really felt like they were focused one step at a time, one season at a time, right? It's like, let's get through the bubble, and then immediately we have to start negotiations on next season. And I imagine as soon as they get this season done, it's immediately what happens you know, in the following season. Like This coronavirus is lasting longer. It's killing more people. It's disrupting society for longer than anyone expected, even back in August, right? Or even, and certainly back in March. So it just continues to change their thinking and it continues to wreak havoc. And that's why I, I'm actually confident they're going to be able to get a deal done here this week because 
I don't think they have an alternative, right? There's not some sort of a situation where like some hardball negotiating tactic by either side is going to pay off with like this big windfall down the road like it normally would during a labor negotiation. Like right now, the coronavirus has all the leverage. The, the owners don't have any leverage. The players don't really have any leverage. Like where are the players going to go if they don't play, right? What are the owners going to do if they they can't afford to have zero revenue next season? I mean, they're, they're backed into a corner together. So um, I guess for this particular season, I'm still confident that they will uh, be able to figure it out. And another factor in terms of my confidence is the idea of crickets that I mentioned earlier, which is, you know, if a diehard like you is struggling to stay invested during that first shutdown and they go, what happened to go into a second shutdown, that's a huge warning flag. And when you're talking about casual fans, when you're talking about season ticket holders, maybe people who, you know, get the 10 game packs or the five game packs rather than the full season, you're trying to retain all of those customers. You're trying to keep them interested and locked into your product. And if there's any talk about labor strife, that's just going to turn those people off completely. Like they're just saying, look, man, come on, you guys got to figure this out. I got other things going on in my life. This is the last thing I'm worried about. And we already saw some viewership declines in part because of the changing calendar during the bubble, but also potentially because sports just aren't as important to people in their daily lives right now. You know, you're seeing uh, viewership declines really across all sorts of different sports. And it, it also hurts the product without crowds and without fans and without all the pomp and circumstance just isn't as good, you know, from a television standpoint. So all of these things are just like existential crises for the league. And that's why I think like they don't have any choice. Like there's not a situation where they can be like, we just didn't make a deal. Sorry. You know, and I, mm -hmm. I think that you would have diehard fans really upset. And then you had casual fans saying, you know what? Like, I'm done with you guys, at least for the time being. Like, maybe I'll check back in a couple years once coronavirus is done and once you figured everything out. But for right now, I'm just kind of out. And I think that's the problem. But, you know, to answer your question more directly, um, this is going to be like years worth of ongoing labor negotiations to me, right? Like, I, I think that there's a really good chance the following season, 2021, 2022, is mm -hmm. also impacted in some direct way by the coronavirus, whether it's not having all fans, just only being able to have limited fans. You know, some stadiums can have fans, others aren't allowed to have fans. I just think that we're still going to be in a situation, you know, looking ahead, you know, nine or 10 months when that season would start where the coronavirus is still with us. So that puts, um, you know, the NBA in a situation where the coronavirus would have impacted three consecutive seasons, right? And uh, there's really no way around having such a, a major impact not continuing to force you back to the table to kind of like renegotiate every deal point, right? So um, I don't know if that means somebody pulls the plug on the entire CBA, but I do think it means that we're just going to get these just, you know, every four to six months, we're going to have these weeks of negotiations that kind of play out in public and kind of anger people and, and get them thinking, come on, guys, just play ball, you know? Yeah, I think what really makes this a really difficult situation is just, as you said, it's a day-to-day -day situation where the players and the league are kind of negotiating in the short term, and they're really focused on getting the 2020, 2021 season off the ground in a smooth uh, as smooth a way as possible. But at the same time, like we talked about in a previous episode, one of the big sticking points here is that, you know, they want, the league wants to normalize future seasons as much as possible. And that's the, that's the issue at hand here. Like, when are we going to start this upcoming season? The players want to drag it on. I think money is an issue for sure, but long-term 
uh, you know, not competing with football, um, ending the season in the summer and kind of getting back on track is also a big a big factor here. And so if you, you know, start it later than your your regular season and your playoffs potentially would go deeper into the summer and then it impacts the future. So it's just like there's it's like you're juggling a bunch of different balls in the air at the same time and you know, you could keep your 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 eyes uh you know uh, on the ground as much as possible and trying to focus on just this upcoming season and getting that to go as smoothly as you can, but like everything you do now also impacts the future too, right? So it's yeah. just it's well. Let's let's look even longer than that. I think that's a great point, Michael. So if I'm Adam Silver or one of his key deputies, and I'm looking at these numbers, right, and my chart for game day revenue says zero for next year, and my chart for television <laughs> revenue says whatever billion it would be, right, and I'm thinking, huh, well. There's no way around this, right? We, we're not going to be able to sneak fans into the buildings. It's not going to happen this year, and it might not happen next year. My entire thought process shifts towards how can I keep my television partners as happy as possible because eventually, in 2025, our media rights deals are going to be up, and I need to have whatever leverage I can possibly create for that moment because that's my only source of income, right? It's like... If you're working two or three jobs, that's great. Let's say you get laid off from one or two of those jobs and you're down to your single source of income. Well, you're probably working harder to keep your boss happy in those situations, right? And I think right now with the NBA, like the television networks are the tails wagging the dogs, right? Like they, what they say carries a lot of influence because they're the ones who are actually delivering money for the NBA and the players, right? So I think if I was the NBA, it goes back to like whether you start on December 22nd, is that a luxury or not? Uh, if I was the NBA and the players, I would say, look, like we've got to maximize our television ratings this season and next season, no matter what. The only way we're able to do that next season is if we start on time and play a normal schedule. We saw what happens if we don't. It's a bloodbath. The ratings go way down, right? In terms of this season, like we cannot afford to really avoid any premier showcase uh, moments, right? We're probably not going to have an all-star weekend, which generates a lot of uh, interest in television ratings because that's going to be too difficult logistically. Um, we're not even certain that we can put out a full schedule at this point. According to reports, the NBA might release the schedule in halves, right? So they, they only give you half the schedule and then they like, you know, see how it goes and then do the second half to kind of finish the season. So it's a very tentative situation. If you're in, in that tough of a spot, you've got to have your primetime games like pretty much no matter what. You just got to load it up and and keep those television partners happy. And so, you know, I do feel for the players. I feel for myself. I feel for you, Michael. This is a really tough turnaround. But I also think like it's a situation where it's almost like beggars can't be choosers, right? I mean, it's it's pretty dire. And if you do punt on that and you're costing yourself, even if it's not $500 million, even if it's $400 million, I don't think you can afford to to let that money go. Uh, and when you're in a situation where you're having the toughest, you know, financial year for the league in in decades, right? Yeah, I mean, you keep bringing up the television partners and I totally see their role in all of this and it, it is integral going forward because of the the looming contract negotiations between all parties. But what I think about in the short term is like, what if the television product in the 2021 season is atrocious because the players are just not physically fit or mentally fit to compete um, 
at the highest level because of the sacrifices that they just made going into the bubble and and the season being kind of shrunk down and there being more back-to-backs and it being just this really weird truncated situation where like we made jokes in the last episode about how like Kawhi Leonard's going to play like 15 games during the regular season next year well here's my counter to that um and this is going to sound unusual coming from my mouth. I think I'm one of the biggest basketball fans <laughs> out there and, you know, one of the people who follows and, and enjoys this sport more than anybody. I think there's a decent chance that the television product sucks no matter what next year, right? And I will certainly be watching and I really hope all our listeners are watching and I think there's going to be a million fun storylines to dig in. But when you're saying no fans, you're saying the possibility of positive tests to disrupt, disrupt the season, you're saying no bubble um, you know, all these shortened season 72 games, um, you know, already off the calendar by months and months with some guys having very little rest, even if they go to January, that's not that much rest for the Lakers and the final four teams in the bubble. Um, and you're talking about a shortened free agency period and, and a shortened and condensed, you know, preseason and training camp situation to get guys back up to speed. I think there's a real possible uh, possibility the television product is bad, even if they started in January 17th or 18th, right? So it goes back to like, if it's going to suck both ways, uh, you know, you should you try to just suck in front of as many people as possible <laughs> <laughs> this is well, yeah, this is such a grim conversation but it's like that is a really funny question because it's like if you do put out a really crappy product against as ma- uh, in front of as many people as you possibly can do you permanently like turn off a segment of your audience <laughs> where it's just like what is this what am i watching who like why isn't lebron playing you know what i mean like Look, it's just I, yeah maybe i am too getting too grim i know what you're saying are you going to wind up like alienating people with just a horrible christmas day and like everybody's yeah. just tuned out <laughs> i'm not sure well here's the thing first of all let's give the nba and their players a lot of credit when they restarted those regular season games in the bubble that was actually pretty fun. And there were some like awesome, especially younger guys, storylines coming out. Ja Morant. Um, obviously, the Pelicans were a little bit disappointing, but the Blazers went on, on a run. The Suns went on a run. So there will be stories to get going. And I think there are a lot of teams out there that are ready to go. I mean, some of them have been waiting since March. Others have just been waiting since, um, you know, basically August, uh, depending on when they got eliminated. Um, so, you know, I'm... I'm not as worried about the overall quality of the product aside from like the final four teams. And I think in those cases, you're going to see, as we've discussed, load management and everything else. And I think if you're the NBA, you can't build this entire season schedule around ensuring that LeBron is rested, right? Or ensuring that the Lakers have a little bit more time off. I think you've just got to take some of these other teams and and their timelines into consideration too. All right, I think we've uh, batted this one around enough. We will follow up with any other updates that we get here um, as it comes forward uh, either this week or next week. Uh, at this point, the the new deadline would be Friday, um, and we'll see if uh, you know they, they have answers there. Uh, here's an off-ball question for you. Do you think they wanted to extend this deadline, Michael, to see what happens tomorrow during the election? Is that possible? <laughs> Um, like just, I mean, honestly, I, that seems like a valuable piece of information. Um, I, I think you had the White House chief of staff, Mark you mean Meadow- with regards to, with regards to like the public safety measures that would be instituted in January, you mean? Well, just, yeah, possibly or just, you know, like Mark yeah. Meadows, the White House chief of staff said, look, you know, we, we can't control this virus. I think he said that last week. I mean, that's a troubling statement. I don't think democratic politicians would agree with that line of thought like i think if they stepped in they would be feeling like look let's do whatever we possibly can to 
to approach this virus differently than maybe the current administration? Um, would you have more faith in that situation, you know, long term? Um, you know, if uh, if there is a change of leadership, possibly, uh, right? So I, I don't know. It would just be a nice data point to have, I guess. If I was the players and I was, you know, thinking about kind of signing away the next whatever seven or eight months of my life, and there's just this major date looming on Tuesday, just not totally sure I w- want to sign that deal on the Friday before. That's just me personally. I, I'm I'm speculating here. And just, yeah, we don't need to get too into the weeds on this question, but now that you've asked it, something that I'm just thinking about in the last 20 seconds is how billionaires will respond, because um, we know how billionaires are kind of spending their money um, with regards to donating to campaigns, how they would respond if uh, Joe Biden were to win, and that would further impact their bottom lines, and they're already losing money because of I'm just t- talking about the ones who own NBA teams and just what that would, how that would impact their own uh, mental state going forward in negotiations. So there's just a lot of stuff to discuss and we're not, we're like scratching the surface here, but yeah, no, it is a very fascinating question. Yeah. It just, I mean, it just seems logical. It's such a looming date. It's been a countdown for months. So many of the prominent players have been involved and get out the vote efforts and everything else like that. It's just, I don't know how you disconnect the two and we haven't seen any statements on that. So this is just me kind of reading between the lines, but um, like, would you have signed a lease for a car, uh, or, you know, signed a mortgage, uh, for a house on Friday? Yeah, maybe just wait till after Tuesday. You know, it seems like a, seems like a logical move to me. We'll see how this thing plays out. All right, let's get to some of these amazing questions that I was teasing, Michael. Um, last week, Steve Nash loaded up his assistant coaching bench. He's got Mike D'Antoni. He's got Ime Udoka. He's got Amare Stoudemire. And Joseph has a question. With the recent addition to the staff, calling back to the Suns teams of old, how do you see the Nets' style of play playing out in in today's NBA? As someone who wasn't basketball aware during those Suns days, I want to know if they're doubling down on the style of, of ball in modern times or kind of zigging when everyone else is zagging. What do you make of the staff Nash has assembled? So essentially he's asking, are the Nets going to play seven seconds or less style basketball? And actually... I think when they uh, first hired Nash, didn't I make a joke that they were going to be playing seven dribbles or more basketball, where basically, you know, Kyrie Irving's just pounding away and Kevin Durant's pounding away in isolation. I was kind of questioning whether they were even Mm going to try to play that Sun style. But you look at the brain trust that Steve Nash is assembling, clearly he's got some strong thoughts about how basketball should be played. You can imagine two great athletes in Kyrie and Kevin Durant looking pretty awesome in, uh, you know, in a seven seconds or less style, assuming that they're staying healthy and that they're all back up to speed. So I'm curious, do you, uh, are you believing in this idea of the seven seconds or less nets? And um, answer his question, because it sounds like he's a younger listener. Like, what do you remember about those Suns teams and, and how can kind of their lessons be applied to the modern game? I mean, the the big hire here that I think actually matters the most is obviously Dan Tony in terms of just stylistic influence. Uh, obviously, he has a relationship with Steve Nash going back to those seven seconds or less Suns teams um, in the middle of the last decade. Um, I mean, I would be surprised if the Brooklyn Nets were the slowest team in the league and they had a strong defense first mentality. Honestly, that's, I mean, that would be shocking to me based on some of these hires. I I don't know, you know, Udoka (laughs) or. To put it lightly. 
Yeah, I don't, you know, Amari Stoudemire, we know what type of player he was. Steve Nash had his own issues. Uh, D'Antoni coached teams. You know, some have been better defensively than others, including those Suns teams. Those weren't, like, atrocious defensive teams, some of them. But, like, their MO was to get up the floor and score, and it was offense first in terms of who was on the court and what types of lineups were being played. So, I mean, my hunch here is that, like, the Nets are going to shoot a lot of threes. They'll probably be top three in three-point rate next season. They'll probably be top three, top five in in pace, I would imagine, even though Kyrie is kind of his own a different type of point guard than Steve Nash was. But I think they'll, they'll run a ton of pick and roll uh, and just like leverage space a ton and play really fast. I mean, that's what I see. Like D'Antoni, this seems like... You know, based on the comments that Steve Nash has made before, long before he was uh, uh, the coach of the Nets, when he would discuss the teams that he played on with Mike D'Antoni, like his his regret, and Mike D'Antoni has echoed this, is that they didn't shoot more threes and they didn't play faster and they didn't, you know, put Sean Marion at the five in more lineups and stuff like that. So I think it'll be a really fun, funky team. And, like, it's a little worrisome in terms of, you know, you need defense to win championships, and that's going to be a little bit of a question mark based on the personnel that they have right now. But offensively, they could be the most exciting team in the league. Well, I'll just say this up front. First of all, I have always thought that Kevin Durant was not selfish enough as a basketball player, that he needed to shoot a lot more. And I think when you look at his overall offensive efficiency numbers, even like in his very best seasons, but not even necessarily just in Golden State, in Oklahoma City, I think a coach like D'Antoni and even like a front office like Houston's would have said, all right, Katie, like you're doing a great job here with 20 shots a game. We need to get you 24 shots a game, right? Or mm-hmm. you know, you're mm-hmm. getting to the free throw line X number of times. You're this unbelievable like 90% free throw shooter. We want to get you to the free throw line twice as often as you are, right? Like they would have found kind of ways to take his own individual efficiency and kind of translate it even more into a team context. And they would have basically said like, look, you have something past a green light. Like we're going to set you up in certain situations where we are expecting and demanding you to shoot the ball way more often than you do currently. So I think that that's the most exciting part of what um, the Nets are trying to do here, which is take advantage of Kevin Durant's raw skills and try to maybe get even more offense out of him than they've ever gotten before uh, or anyone's ever gotten before during his career. I actually think that the more I think about it, Michael, KD could be an awesome bubble slash empty gym player because he's always been this pickup guy you know dating back to like middle school you know always been the guy who wants to play just AAU tournament after AAU tournament really relishes the one-on-one matchups kind of punishing his opponents and everything else like I don't think he plays for the crowd I think he plays to just like you know put points on his opponent's head right so if you're trying to say okay which players are actually going to adjust pretty well to a weird season I actually think KD would adjust very very well now Kyrie there's some more questions there because he does play to the crowd right it's always you know he's He's a showman yeah he's a showman he's putting up 50 on the road and trying to kind of like quiet the road crowd or he's you know playing to that Barkley Center crowd on opening night when he had that uh you know, that near miss in the closing seconds and everybody's going nuts and just riding the uh, Kyrie wave. So there's a little Mm -hmm. bit of different between those two. But, um, you know, I'm starting to finally work through the grief of that Kevin Durant injury in the 2019 finals, Michael. And I'm starting to get a little bit excited about what he could do now that he's coming back after such a long layoff. And so, yeah, it's a real transformation for me. But I think that um, 
there is the possibility. There is a scenario where this could be like the most fun version of KD, like KD Unleashed that we've ever seen. If that's how it plays out, I would consider that to be a major philosophical win for Steve Nash and Mike D'Antoni um, and all the rest. Not sure Amari Stoudemire is going to be getting a ton of credit for that, but, <laughs> but <laughs> you know what I mean. Now, in terms of Joseph's question, look, everybody plays like the seven seconds or less Suns now, Joseph. If you go back and look at what the pace was mm-hmm. like in the mid-2000s and how many three-pointers they were shooting in the mid-2000s, it was radical for the time but it was normal or even like below average for our current time, right? So they deserve so much credit for just transitioning the best way to play basketball and and how you can score points and, uh, you know, do it with easier looks than just mid-range jumpers and all the rest of it. Um, They deserve a lot of credit as a forefather, you know, kind of to that movement. And um, so... I think when you watch them play the the Nets, you're not even going to think about the seven seconds or less Suns. I mean, you will because you'll see Nash and and D'Antoni there. But I don't think you're going to be just constantly using that as a reference point. I think you're going to say, wow, like they have two very modern offensive superstar level players and they're playing in a very modern system, right? And I think that's what you're going to think more than anything else. Um, All right, here's a question from John in LA. And Michael, we were getting into this idea of quality of play. What does it look like when they come back to the court? He says... What do you think of this theory? I don't think we're going to see as much improvement in individual players who we would like to see improving this upcoming season, whether it's a physical conditioning issue like Zion Williamson or Joel Embiid, or in their development of their games like a Kyle Kuzma or a Matisse Tybel. I say this primarily due to the extremely short offseason. So in other words, mm-hmm. what John is saying is the typical second or third year leap we might see from younger players um, might not take place because they just don't haven't had as much time to work on their games and refine things. And we did see some guys take leaps before the bubble, but they had four months off. In most cases, some of these guys who are coming off the bubble experience won't have four months of development afterwards. And then I, I just wanted to add on to John's question, what other on-court impacts do you think that uh, we would expect if games play in December? And of course, we've talked about veteran guys sitting out, is there anything else that you're kind of bracing for here as we get ready for next season? Well, first to address John's question, which I think is a really good one. I mean, I I I kind of disagree with it from the sense that, like, unless you had surgery, um, I don't know why you wouldn't be able to necessarily improve as a basketball player or um if you're Joel Embiid or Zion Williamson, why you wouldn't be able to get into peak physical condition and time for the season to start. Um, but like, you know, again, if, unless you had an operation on your body or you've been dealing with some physical ailment and you needed more time to physically recover, like, I just think that players should be better. Um, and Kuzma and, and Kuzma is an interesting you know, example because he played for the Look, Lakers, he's going to be Kuzma's going to be the same player. I'm with John Kuzma. on that one. Look, I mean, that Kuzma's guy, probably going to take a step back. Yeah. yeah. No, but I think your point is well taken. So there are no excuses for these guys who have been off since March, right? You have no excuse not to show up and shave. And the guys who have been off since late August, same deal. Um, you know, you you had the rest time during the four month hiatus, and you're going to have some rest time after the bubble. So Zion and B, those guys should definitely show up and shave. If they don't it's a no excuses environment, at least for me, right? I will be livid if either one of those guys doesn't show up in in, in the right situation, given how important they are to their teams and given how incredibly talented they are um, as individual players. 
Now, in terms of the player development thing, it's tricky because that's not always just linear, right? Like we can never really tell when guys are going to have a breakthrough. When does that moment hit? And mm-hmm. this is really disrupting. So I think it's actually really difficult, John, to determine when some of these guys are going to be able to take steps forward. I do think we should keep in mind, though, that there's a lot of young players who haven't played since March. That's a long time to develop, right? So some of those guys, I think, are going to sort of rot on the vine, so to speak, right? Like they didn't get enough five-on-five time or they haven't been engaged with basketball activities, so maybe their attention waned a little bit. There's going to be some guys who come back and you're thinking, man, like I thought this guy would be a lot better than he is. And I think there's going to be some other guys who come back and you're like, wow, we haven't seen this guy play since March. He is a totally different player. Now, have I started brainstorming which guys I I want to put in that category? Um, Not quite yet. But one example of that, you know, going into the bubble was OG Ananobi. You know, he is a guy who had made, you know, pretty strong gradual uh, progress uh, over the course of a couple of years, had Mm -hmm. some injury issues with Toronto. And I thought to, to me, like when he got there, he he popped, right? Like he looked like a, a much more effective player. And of course, mm-hmm. he has that amazing shot in the corner that everyone's going to remember. But um, he looked like he had taken a step forward. He was now a more valuable player than he had been previously. I think we're going to see guys like that, uh, especially on some of those, uh, you know, those teams that didn't even get invited to the bubble in the first place. There will be some like, allow me to reintroduce myself. My name is Hove moments from players on the bottom eight. <laughs> Uh, that was that was a terrific uh, quotation of one of the all-time great poets of all time, Ben. That was that was beautiful. Um, I think that real just for quick, the listeners' benefit, we had to stop because we both started laughing at how ridiculous <laughs> I am for about forty-five seconds, and we're gonna pick this episode back up. Here we go, Michael. Very professional. Uh, yes, exactly. Um, I think to further answer John's question, um, you know, one of the things that we've talked about is teams that could be hurt physically by the shorter layoff the like the final four teams what if like i'm gonna go the other way and say that it's possible that because those four teams are really likely to return basically the same cores that these teams could just hit the ground running and everything could fall into rhythm even quicker for them than they otherwise would if there was like a four-month layoff or something like that because these teams they like were just playing high level basketball together two months ago. We saw what they looked like after a four month hiatus, and they looked they all looked really good. So as long as the rosters and the key pieces uh, stay glued and attached, I, I think that like Denver and Boston and Miami and and the Lakers could be like really good from the start. Is that crazy? It's a great take. Um, I think that the Lakers almost put in a different category because so much of what they do is about those two superstar level guys. And I do think they're going to ease up on those two players. Right. But when you look at those other three teams, I think part of the reason why those teams advanced was because they had good chemistry, good camaraderie, um, good cohesion, and they could go into their benches a little bit. Right. And so I think it's, it's very possible. Like if I was managing it for one of those three teams, I would just come out of the season and play like a 10 or 11 man rotation, right? I would say, look, we've, we know who we are. We've got a pretty clear identity. We're bringing most people back. We're just going to go deeper into our bench. And if that means a few losses along the way, that's okay. But at least we'll keep the minutes off of our main guys. What I wouldn't want to have happen is, you know, you get to March and April and guys like Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum or Jamal Murray 
are feeling like this kind of accumulation effect of fatigue, right? Where they come out of the gate popping, you know, they're 16 and four in the first 20, everything's rolling. And then now you're feeling the, the lingering after effects of the bubble experience and guys just, it just gets to their legs, you know, right before the playoffs. That's what I would want to try to avoid. So I would maybe if I was those teams, if I was feeling really good coming out of camp, rather than trying to start in sixth gear, I might just try to scale things back a little bit and go to like fourth gear and just go deeper into my bench and do it that way. Um, But I think that your point on the chemistry and um, just the momentum factor is a really good one because imagine how hard it's going to be for teams like the Minnesota Timberwolves and the Golden State Warriors and the Detroit Pistons to come back and play against those teams when they haven't played since March. I mean, that's not even rust. That's like third degree rust. Actually, have you ever seen um, a car like in Michigan in the winter where like literally it starts to fall apart because there's like so much rust happening, like salt on the roads and everything just like eats into the car's exterior and just pieces of the door like just like falling down to the ground. That is the metaphor for the Detroit Pistons, Minnesota Timberwolves, and all these other teams (laughs) out there, right? This is not like, hey, we're just going to shake it off. It's like, well, we might have to replace like all four doors on the vehicle because of the extensive damage to the, uh, you know, to the exterior. That's how I look at it anyways. No, that's that's a really um, mean and rude metaphor, but I think it's I think it's a a vivid metaphor. (laughs) No, I think it's apt. I think that... uh, that these teams could be it, it it's like these guys haven't played basketball presumably together in like well over a calendar year so it should be it should be um not pretty um but then again a lot of those teams will have different pieces on them as well so it'll just be like yep. any other beginning of a new season that was the last point i wanted to make just uh, in response to the question is there's going to be a lot of free agency movement in terms of volume of players now not necessarily quality of high level players but you're going to have a lot of teams plugging in different pieces. And so I would expect to see some level of just early scramble. You know, lots of teams trying to kind of find out who they are, trying to put those pieces together. Some new looks will hit together, some won't. And I think that's going to be one of the major takeaways, John, from the early season would just be like, okay, who can kind of get their uh, their team on track after such a condensed free agency period? I think that's definitely something to watch. And Uh, I do think, though, that like a lot of the contending teams are pretty locked in, like you're saying. So it might be easier for them. You know, maybe you're making one or two additions here with the mid-level or. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. (sighs) Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. 
From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. You're, you know, you're swinging one trade to kind of balance a roster, something along those lines. Uh, they may have an advantage compared to some teams that are pursuing like a more aggressive retooling uh, process. All right, here's a question for Thomas. He has a crazy idea for the NBA. If the league doesn't allow fans in the arena... What if a few or at least one game was played outside, thus allowing spectators to view the game? It would be incredible to see players like LeBron, Steph, Katie, or Giannis adapt to the new environment and ball up on an outdoor court. The NHL has the Winter Classic, so why can't the NBA have the Blacktop Classic? Michael, what do you think? So my, you know, I read this question, and then the first thing that popped into my head was that college basketball game from 2011 between Michigan State and UNC that was played on an aircraft carrier. I have and been to that aircraft carrier. I've toured it. It's in San Diego. Um, there was no game when I was there. I was looking around. Where's the Where's the court? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it's a cool aircraft carrier, and it, Sweet. it, it was yeah. a it was a cool idea, kind of right. Uh, yeah, well, so I was doing a little bit of research reading about it, and it was called the Carrier Classic, and they had to cancel the tradition after one year because they tried to do it in year two, and there was so much condensation on the court because of whatever weather was going on um, that they just couldn't play basketball. It wasn't safe. Um, and the first thing that I, I didn't even think about the court and how like unpredictable weather could be on just an outdoor wood surface, assuming that they're going to play on hardwood. But like, if my jumper, if I'm Steph Curry and I shoot a three and my jumper just gets like, like dies in the wind, you know, like when you would play basketball outside as a kid and like you'd shoot a 20 footer and it would just drop like two feet in front of the basket, even though you put muscle behind it because the wind is not your friend at that moment. Like if I'm Steph and that happens, I'm just like going to be super pissed. Like, I, like, I, like the, the gusts of wind could be just like, it could make it an unwatchable event, I would say, and a very miserable one for NBA players. Well, I mean, look, you wouldn't want this to be a real game, right? Because of the factors that you're describing. The ideal situation was if you could make the all-star game outdoors and like play it like in Vegas with some crazy beautiful backdrop in February where it's not too hot and, you know, the lights are on it and it feels like this huge show. Um, But, you know, they're probably not going to have an all-star game this year. I mean, a preseason game, I'm not sure that's really getting people very excited, Um, but maybe it would. Um, I could see a scenario where like a Lakers-Clippers game outdoor you know, somewhere on like a, you know, maybe you're playing it like at the football stadium, right? And you just put the court down in the middle of the football field and play it there. That could be pretty wild, man. Like that, I could see people being pretty excited. I do think Thomas though, that even having fans in an outdoor stadium seems like a pretty bad idea right now. So 
I, would you want to have it in an empty outdoor stadium? That seems even more depressing than an indoor empty stadium, doesn't it? How long do you think it would take players to like get used to the sight lines and, and all that? Because well, look, I don't want to. I didn't want to, you know, call you coddled or anything, Michael. But come, some of us grew up playing on outdoor basketball courts. I mean, look, you know, some of these players know how that goes, and yeah, they're going to use it as an excuse if the wind, you know, knocks their shot out. But <laughs> you're going to see a lot more guys go into the hole. They're probably going to try to start calling their own fouls a little bit, you know, doing the ref's job for them. These guys have played outdoors before. This is not like some crazy, innovative, uh, you know, never before seen environment. I'm, Although it is different yeah. now compared to you know when we were kids. I'm already like in my drafts folder on Twitter. I've already got excuses built in for Jason Tatum if the Celtics <laughs> ever play in a game like this. Don't worry, I got you, Jason. Yeah, um, Thomas, I actually love the idea. I would like to see it implemented. I, I, I like you, Michael. Remembered that Carrier Classic thing. It was just so novel it was so unique and it was it stuck with us that idea worked because both you and i remembered it almost 10 years later right so go ahead if the nba is going to be thinking outside the box with all these play-in tournaments and horse tournaments and you know dunk contest rigging so that aaron gordon loses all these other things that they do on a regular basis we can get a game outside and that's fine i mean maybe you could do it with like the rookie sophomore game you know during an all-star weekend now for whatever reason they've lined up like the next five all-star weekends in cold weather climate so thanks a lot for that but maybe eventually <laughs> we could get one in a nice market that people you know really are excited about going to and then they could play it outside there it would be awesome i would definitely be into it as a reporter um would i bring an umbrella for my computer in case it was raining i mean i think it would probably be okay you know i, I wouldn't be too worried about it and obviously that if there were certain weather conditions they couldn't play in we wouldn't have to be worried about working in them all right um Let's take this question from Peter. What is Buddy Heald's trade value? I'm, am I crazy that I want the Kings to match and keep Bogdan Bogdanovich, even if that means trading away Buddy? Um, what is the right time to give up on a player like Marvin Bagley? He gets his numbers, but he's always injured and needs to be set up on offense. He was actually outplayed by Rashawn Holmes last year. So Peter is just having an existential crisis with regard to the Sacramento Kings, a team that I imagine... <laughs> wants to kind of compete for a playoff spot next year, wouldn't you think? I mean, that kind of is always their goal. And they always come up a little bit short. Um, what are your takes on Buddy, Bogdan, and Bagley, the three Bs in Sacramento? Um, I mean, first and foremost, like Bagley, if you're the Sacramento Kings, you're like, I wouldn't be that concerned. You know what I mean? Like they just drafted him uh, two years ago, uh, one pick ahead of where uh, Luka Doncic could have been selected, which needs to be. Well, that's why um, they're concerned. I mean, that's, that's why they're concerned. Like, they're just worried. Did we get, you know, Sam Bowie here? Is or do we get a Greg Oden here? I mean, that's what they're worried about. Yeah, I think when when I, like I've I've liked watching Bagley play um, when he's been healthy enough to do so, and so like I think his game is super interesting. I wouldn't be that worried about him just in a vacuum and, you know, uh, I'm sure some of his injury issues have just been bad related to bad luck. And I like his height, I like his touch on the uh, uh, like his post game. I like, you know, the fact that he can go a little bit outside and hit an 18-footer. Maybe he'll, you know, migrate out to the corners a little bit and hit above the break threes at some point. He's a pretty good rebounder, really athletic. So, I like him. I like his fit with Fox too, and I like you know, uh, if, you know, Luke Walton is willing to play fast basketball once again, then I think the fit just gets that much better. 
Um, but I think the more interesting question for sure is Buddy and like what's Buddy's trade value and what do they do with Bogdanovich, who uh, I'm pretty sure, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, Ben, but you think that Bogdanovich is a better player than Buddy Heald. Is that, am I accurate in making that statement? Absolutely. Feel free. Put him away. <laughs> um, no, you saw this report about Buddy's not texting the coaches and all this stuff. Yes. It's like, come on, bro. You're not that guy. You're not good enough to be doing that. And I'm still mad about the money fingers from last year when he was trying to negotiate his deal in public and he was kind of like telling front office, pay me, pay me during that preseason or exhibition game. Mm-hmm. Still mad about that. I don't know what he brings to the table. <laughs> I think that people see the three-point percentage, they fall in love, and there's so much more to the game than just that. And I think you saw it. No impact on winning last year to me. I would rather have Bogdanovich than Buddy, and I would be shopping Buddy like crazy. And I don't know how big the market is for Buddy, frankly. Mm. I think the market is interesting because, I mean, I'm a bigger fan of his than you are. I think think his skill set offensively is a little more varied than just – he's definitely not just a spot-up three-point shooter. I mean, he's he's up there with, like, the best, like, in-shape players in the league. He'll run if you just look at his metrics with, like – uh, miles covered on offense per game and stuff like he is he sprints around the floor so he's yeah, really difficult well, you, to you have to be careful with the distance covered metric for him because he's running around lost on defense a lot you know there's a <laughs> lot of times he's taking wrong turns he's got to double back you know sometimes like if you're a bus driver michael it's not always good to be the bus driver who has the most miles covered because that means you got lost you took the wrong exit i teed that one up for you and so you're sorry. welcome i'm sorry um but no, you're fine. But um, no, but like the buddy's getting paid a lot of money and, you know, four year, $94 million deal. If you're a team that is interested in him, the good news is that his contract is declining every year in, in money. So um, well, that's good. Can I, can I that's ask you good. a question? Do you like Buddy in Sacramento or do you like the idea of Buddy being able to be like, who he actually is as a player and maybe in a, in a more functional environment, who he could become. Right. Because I can't imagine you like buddy in Sacramento. Like what is there really to like? I don't know. I think I get, I I think about two years ago, more so than last year, like last year was just a disaster for everybody involved. But when Dave Yeager was the coach two years ago, like buddy was a borderline all-star and that backcourt, him and Fox looked really good. They made a lot of sense together. I think last year was trouble. And I mean, when you look at Buddy's age, he's not like a spring chicken. He's not 24 years old. He's pretty up there. So I don't (laughs) know. He was on some of his forms that he filled out a couple years ago. Sure, 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 sure. Update the paperwork uh, (laughs) coming into the draft. That's a deep cut joke for the draft orgs. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, let me ask you this then. I think that's a completely fair read is he the kind of person you would choose instead of a coach, right? Because if he had success with Jaeger, had a tough year under Walton, like, are you saying, well, look, like, we're sitting on this amazing asset, you know, this is the coach's fault, and maybe if things don't go well next year, we got to stick with Buddy and ride it out. Like, do you like him that much? Yeah, when you first started asking that question, I was like, who's the coach? Because if it's Luke Walton, I don't really care that much. (laughs) But I also think, like, Going back to your one of your initial points, like I don't think I wouldn't call Buddy an asset anymore. Like he's basically in his prime now, and he's making a lot of money. So he's off that rookie deal, 
And like, what is he in terms of like in a playoff series? Is he getting just punished defensively? I don't know. We've never seen it. So um, I guess like going back to answer the fundamental question here, like I like Bogdanovich more as well. And I think that it's going to be really interesting to see how much money Bogdanovich earns on with an offer sheet and how much another team is willing to pay him and how much how high the Kings are willing to go to match because like, it, like Bogdanovich took Buddy Heald's spot in the starting lineup last season. And I don't know if the Kings are going to be super pumped about paying him $20 million a year. So yeah, and he's going to want a, more than Buddy, right? Cause he's going to say, I'm a better player than Buddy. But the problem is the market, the, yeah. the market's uh, circumstance is not mm-hmm. nearly as good as it was last year when Buddy signed his deal because of the pandemic. So that yeah, creates yeah. the opportunity for hard feelings. It creates the need for a possible trade. Just to double back on Bagley, um, I'm worried he's a guy who who makes sense more on paper than in reality. Um, and that could also just be part of the, the Kings' just general dysfunction of having guys maybe where we feel like they're not getting the most out of them. I also just worry about you know the overall breadth of his offensive skills. Is he a little bit too narrow of a player to be as you know completely useful as possible. At the same time, I'm also not ready to give up on him. Um, and I was really impressed, Michael. This is a, a random memory, but I saw him working out you know during one of his, of his injury stints where he was still traveling with the team, but he wasn't playing. He was going awfully hard. I mean, this guy was really, really committed, and he seems like he's about the right things as a player. And and he went to uh, high school down here in SoCal, and, and people speak pretty fondly about him still. So I would say for Kings fans, like – if you do have long-term hopes, they're pretty reliant upon Marvin Bagley, and he's definitely not Luka, but he does seem like a pretty interesting uh, player and person, so I wouldn't give up there quite yet. I would just look back on the you know three-plus years of Buddy Heald in Sacramento at this point, and I would say there were good times like you described, Michael. There were some bad times like you described, Mm-hmm. I don't think there's going to be great times, uh, you know, and I might just decide, hey, it's time to pull the plug. And unfortunately, Sacramento's found itself in that situation, you know, repeatedly over the years, just, you know, needing a fresh start or a clean break with guys. And to me, it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. I don't think you would be impacting wins and losses basically at all if you traded Buddy Heald. Uh, and that's, I just think he cancels out a lot of the things he does well with a lot of the things he doesn't do well, especially in that environment. Here's another fun question from Thomas in Canada. He says, the Raptors are the one team we have in the NBA, and this upcoming season there is a chance we may lose them to the border travel restrictions. There are rumors of a relocation to Louisville, but what other cities would you like to see the Raptors play in? Seattle, Buffalo, and then he adds Giannis to the Raps. All right, Thomas. All right. Um, what do you think, Michael? Do you have a dream destination for the Toronto Raptors if they have to uh, have a temporary home here in the United States? We've seen this a few times. Remember back um, when the New Orleans, uh, I guess it was uh, Hornets at the time, relocated mm-hmm. to Oklahoma City? Um, we've yep. seen just for, you know, temporarily, I believe because of a hurricane. Um, there's been a few other situations like that. You know, if you go back further where, you know, arenas are being built. So, you know, the the Warriors like bo- uh, bopped around in, in different little cities, uh, you know, in Northern California there for a while. So we've seen temporary relocations every once in a while throughout NBA history. This is a, obviously a, a much larger magnitude because of the, uh, the cross-border implications. Uh, what are you hoping for? 
Well, Louisville was my adopted city when we were making fake bubble oh, teams yeah. back, at, back in May. And so I'm pretty excited about that as a possibility. Um, you know, I think that for a variety of reasons, number one, like um, uh, it's a basketball hungry part of the country, like University of Kentucky, uh, Louisville, um, a lot of NBA players come from there. They're very familiar with the surroundings. It, I think that it would just be fun, and you wouldn't have so much of a problem in non-pandemic times putting people in seats there. And obviously, it would be a little bit different now. But um, I think people would watch the games on local in the local television market, so that would be good. Um, I also think that, and this is kind of doubles back to my rationale when we were doing our, our bubble exercise, just like, you know, there's a lot of um, um, social turmoil in Louisville in that area right now. And so it would be really nice to see the uh, an NBA team that is, you know, embracing that community and, and applying daily pressure to the elected officials down there for various misgrievances that have happened um uh, over the past year or so, uh, I I think like you know some of the other cities that we've that uh, Thomas mentioned in his email, like Seattle would be awesome for obvious reasons, and I think that that was your, if I'm not mistaken, that was your adopted city for our exercise. Am I right with that? I think I did San Diego, but we also talked about a Seattle as a relocation yeah. Um, hub. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean they're they're out there. Did you have any others you wanted to to include? Um, not really. <laughs> I mean, I, I, Louisville just like, I, I think it's great. Um, Seattle would be great. Uh, I guess like Las Vegas, but like, would we try to keep them on the East Coast, right? Because they're Toronto. Like, I don't know. I think that, um, just go to Louisville. That would be super. That'd be super. Well, I know like Mark Stein of the New York Times would love Buffalo, right? Because he's like the, the, he remembers the Buffalo Braves from the old days, like mm-hmm. the original LA Clippers. And it's right across the border there from Toronto. It would give this uh, community like a basketball team for the first time in decades. It'd be this amazing full circle moment for him as a writer. Um, I'm surprised he hasn't done like a five page spread in, in the Sunday Times arguing for the Raptors to come to Buffalo. That feels like uh, I'm just now going to act as his editor here it's live on the podcast. Probably in the works. Yeah. Okay, yeah, he's working on it. Um, that would be kind of cool too, honestly. Like I, I could imagine being a Buffalo citizen and just being like, yeah, it's kind of a hassle to go over to Toronto to watch sporting events, you know. But now they just fell in your lap. Like I'd be pretty into it. Um, they would have a lot of cold weather issues there, though, especially if they're starting in Christmas. I mean, that would be a, a rough first couple of months. I think your point on geography is a really good one because all of the places that I wanted the Raptors to relocate to were just convenient for me because I would like to have as many teams close to me as possible in the event that you know we're able to cover games and stuff. So my mind went first to Vegas because they've got the facilities because it would be fairly warm because it's only a four-hour drive away from me. Then I thought about San Diego, which is basically like heaven on earth. And if you had to like reward a team for being in the bubble longer than any other team, saying you get to play your season in San Diego would be pr- <laughs> would be pretty awesome. Then I was wondering, like, could you bring them into other NBA markets that are like, already existing markets? Like, would that like could you just have like a third LA team or even like a third New York team, right? And maybe they just use the facility on the night when the other team isn't there um, to cut down on travel, make things even easier, right? Like if you're saying from a logistics perspective, 
let's say they just like shared the Barclays Arena with the Nets. Um, you know, teams could come in and play two games against the Knicks, two games against the Nets, two games against the Raptors. You stay in New York for a week. You don't have to fly and travel and then you're out. Right. Um, so that would be great. Yeah. There could be some, you know, merit to that idea as well. Otherwise, um, it's hard to get excited about, you know, a lot of the other markets that are kind of untapped there east of the Mississippi, right? I mean, you're probably looking at like what Columbus, you know, maybe mm. some like Grand Rapids in Michigan, possibly. I'm just trying to think of places oh. that have. Hey, come on now. That's, that's sorry. That's Western Michigan. <laughs> I, I, can, I view that as a second home. Don't groan and choke on your own bile when you hear the words Grand Rapids. I mean, geez, Michael. Uh, I guess you could look at uh, you know some further south markets. Uh, you know, I don't know where in Florida, you know, would be the next biggest Tallahassee or something. I, I don't know. I, I guess maybe you would be looking at college markets at that point. And then is that a smart thing to do, uh, you know, to kind of pursue a arena uh, that, you know, maybe has a lot of people already accessing it? I think it gets tricky. So I don't have any clue how this will be determined. If they go with Louisville, I think that that's fine. And it seems weird. It would be really uh, unusual and extraordinary. Oh, another one we should mention maybe is Kansas City, because I know they were trying to get in on the Sacramento Kings there for a while, and they are yeah. uh, an NBA team, and it's a fairly big city. So maybe they could do it. Um, but again, not quite as, as far east as some of the other options. So we will wait and see. I'm curious, though, for the Canadian fans. And I know we have a lot of Canadian Open Floor Globe members. Guys, Email us. Where do you want to see your Raptors land and why? The important part is why. Email us, openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail at gmail.com. All right, uh, Michael, we are going to close up here with an email from one of our longest-term, most devoted listeners, Stavros in Australia. He writes in response to the last episode where I believe, Michael, I attributed the quote, comparison is the thief of joy to Kyrie Irving in response to Bruce's long email about should we be uh, comparing players across different generations and always hopping into the GOAT debate and all of that. And Stavros says, can we please not contextualize that quote to Kyrie Irving, that was Theodore Roosevelt. And he sounded a little bit angry, a little bit annoyed in that email. He uh, he was fed up with me. Michael, I just want to say that as I made that statement, I did so with a tongue in my cheek, but also having forgotten who the original quote was uh, from. I didn't realize it was from Theodore Roosevelt, but I knew it was not Kyrie Irving. And when I was a kid, Michael, I used to love to do this to people and to just see how far I could push it before there was backlash, similar to Stavros's email. So I'm going to give you a couple of examples. Um, there was a Tupac song where he would talk about walking through the valley of the shadow of death. And anytime that would come on, I would be like, God, that is just beautiful language. Like, what a great quote. Or I might bring that up. Uh, you know, in, in general conversation, be like, yes, Tupac said. And then people, of course, if inevitably someone would be like, you know, that's from the Bible, right? Like that, he didn't come up with that. I'd be like, no, 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 that's Tupac. He, he's the one who originated that. And I would kind of get into these fake arguments about who actually coined that term. And, and he actually cites a lot of biblical verses in a lot of his rap. So I would always try to make it seem like he was the one who had come up with it. There was also that line uh, from Nas that sleep is the cousin of death, which I think a lot of people did believe that Nas coined that, but apparently it goes back to some 16th century poet 
And then there's other references, even further back, I guess Homer said that sleep was the brother of death. So, you know, he's kind of building on, you know, previous thinkers. But again, to like kind of troll people, I would be like, yeah, it's just such a brilliant line from Nas. I mean, you know, all time poetic line from a rapper. And, and then people would be like, come on, you know, he didn't really say that, right? He wasn't the first one to come up with that. So I guess what I'm trying to say here, Stavros, I don't know if I got you hook, line, and sinker because I didn't completely realize that uh, Teddy Roosevelt was the original, um, you know, architect of that line about comparison being the thief of joy. But I have a long track record of trying to do this and having it kind of blow up in my face and leading to funny uh, exchanges. Michael, have you ever tried to do this or am I just nuts? No, I mean, this reminds me of that famous quote from LeBron um, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. <laughs> so I totally get what you're going at here. Um, you know, I actually had a quote that uh, a friend of the pod, um, my friend, uh, Alex Wong, um, for the past year or so has constantly tweeted, don't ever underestimate the heart of a champion. And I know and I knew the whole time who actually said that quote Um but I've basically just come to uh, attribute it to Alex. So I just wanted to shout Alex out really quick. And for those who don't know, that is a Rudy Tomjanovich quote when he was the head coach of the Houston Rockets. Um, but it's basically been grandfathered into Alex Wong's book of quotations at and, this and point. And he so. does that to kind of hype up the Raptors, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a, per- it's, a per- it's a perfect appropriation of the quote, so give him credit there. And I can see, like, again, if you just say it over and over again, hey, people will give you credit for it. Uh, it's been known to happen. All right, Stavros, I hope we're all good on that one. I hope you're not too angry. I hope you don't think I'm just some idiot who only lives in the NBA bubble. Although, I guess if you look back at the last six months of my life, Michael, that's pretty much what I've been doing. All right, uh, that's the end of another episode of Open Floor. Guys, you can find us on Apple Podcasts by searching for Open Floor. That's two words. When you find our page, scroll down. It will say rate and review, tap five stars. It's just that easy to help us spread the word. Now, Michael's on Instagram and Twitter, at Michael V as in Victor Pina. I'm on Instagram, at Ben.Golver. On Twitter, at Ben.Golver. As you see, uh, we had enough time to hop into all sorts of different topics about some teams, maybe like the Kings, that we don't always get to. If we have been overlooking or snubbing your favorite team because of all of our talk about the labor negotiations and you know the, the playoffs and the contenders and those kinds of conversations, now is the time to get in. Look, hope springs eternal, even if the NBA offseason's only going to last like 73 days. It still does, I promise. All right, Michael, until later this week, I will talk to you. Talk soon, Ben. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, We've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids, Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Fuma, Sarah McLaughlin. 
Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and two-door cinema club. Being a chef means keeping your cool in the kitchen. And with Resi Priority Notify and Global Dining Access through my Amex Platinum card... Right this way. It's nice to try someone else's food for a change. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. The wait is over. The shy is back on Paramount Plus, and the stakes have never been higher. Everything changes on the south side when a new threat comes to power in the Showtime original series from Emmy winner Lena Waithe. Battle lines will be drawn, alliances will shift, and danger lies around every corner, leaving everyone to wonder who they can trust. Visit ParamountPlus.com slash shot to get a 50% discount off the Paramount Plus with Showtime annual plan. Offer ends July 14th. Subscription auto-renews. Restrictions apply.